Well, welcome again this morning. It's good to gather with you today. My name is Justin. I'm one of the pastors and uh, looking forward to diving into God's word with you this morning in Mark chapter 10. So if you have your Bibles, you can go ahead and open up to that. If you don't have a Bible, we'd love to give one to you. We have a few in the back by the sound booth uh, and also upstairs on the tables for the Lord's Supper. Feel free to grab one of those. And if you don't own one to take one home, it's our gift to you. Uh, This morning, Brandon is going to read our sermon text. So please listen to the word of the Lord. Mark 10, starting in verse 32. And they were on the road going up to Jerusalem, and Jesus was walking ahead of them. And they were amazed, and those who followed were afraid. And taking the twelve again, he began to tell them what was to happen to him, saying, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles, and they will mock him and spit on him, and flog him, and kill him. And after three days, he will rise. And James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came up to him and said to him, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. And he said to them, What do you want me to do for you? And they said to him, Grant us to sit, one at your right hand, and one at your left, in your glory. Jesus said to them, You do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink, or to be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? And they said to him, We are able. And Jesus said to them, The cup that I drink, you will drink, and with the baptism with which I am baptized, you will be baptized. But to sit at my right hand or at my left is not mine to grant, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared. And when the ten heard it, they began to be indignant at James and John. And Jesus called them to him and said to them, You know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. But it shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. And they came to Jericho. And as he was leaving Jericho with his disciples in a great crowd, Bartimaeus, a blind beggar, the son of Timaeus, was sitting by the roadside. And when he heard that it was Jesus of Nazareth, he began to cry out and say, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And many rebuked him, telling him to be silent. But he cried out all the more, Son of David, have mercy on me. And Jesus stopped and said, Call him. And they called the blind man, saying, Take heart, get up, he is calling you. And throwing off his cloak, he sprang up and came to Jesus. And Jesus said to him, What do you want me to do for you? And the blind man said to him, Rabbi, let me recover my sight. And Jesus said to him, Go on your way, your faith has made you well. And immediately he recovered his sight and followed him on the way. Let's pray. O God of the universe, God of our world, God of our lives, we praise you this morning. God, we praise you for making yourself known. We praise you for being near to us. And God, we praise you for your mercy and your grace. We thank you for your holy word. And we pray now with the help of the Holy Spirit that you would illuminate that word for us. Help us to see and savor Jesus this morning. We pray all this in Christ's name. 
Amen. The other day, <clears throat> I was reading a book uh, with my daughter, Emery, and there was a story in the book, there was some illustration or something, and they were talking about uh, a golf game and getting the lowest score to win. She looked at me with a puzzled face and giggled a little bit and said, wait, what? The lowest score to win? She's played basketball before and she's watched her brothers, probably more times than she would like, play baseball. And to win those games, you have to have the most points, the highest score to win. So this seemed very backwards to her. But then I tried to explain to her how the game of golf works and reminded her of how many times we've played mini golf at the beach. You know, sometimes there are things in life that at first seem backwards. They seem upside down to the way we think that they ought to be, but in reality are exactly as they should be. Like if you want more free time in your life, you probably actually need to be a little more structured in your life. If you're feeling really tired, exercise can actually give you more energy. And when it comes to knowing and following Jesus in this life, that is certainly the case that his ways often seem backwards or upside down from the way the world would call us to live. We've seen that throughout our sermon series in the Gospel of Mark, that the way of the king and his kingdom are often different than the way of the world, at times counterintuitive, even countercultural to the ways of the world. But it's the good way of Jesus, the way that leads to life instead of death. As we come to our text today, we see another example of this truth, of this reality, but we also see that at least some of his disciples still don't quite get it. And what follows is another picture of the grace of Jesus, the mercy of Jesus, as he continues to patiently teach his disciples and in turn us what it means to know him and what it means to follow him in this life. What Jesus will show them, what he will teach them, is that even though he is the one who deserves the most glory and the most honor and the most praise, Jesus came to serve and Jesus came to save. Now, if you've been a Christian for a while, you might think, well, yeah, obviously. I mean, you know the good news of the gospel. You know about Jesus' life and his death and his resurrection. You've placed your faith in the finished work of Christ. But that's all the more reason for us to slow down this morning and press in here because I don't want the familiarity with what Jesus has said and what he's done to dull the radical upside-down nature of what he's advocating for right here and how different it truly is. Because what we'll see is that how he serves and how he saves is not only a model for how you and I are called to live our life in this world, but are also what makes it possible for us, for you and I to live our life this way in this world. And so my hope is, is that God will use this time in his word, not only to help us see more of who Jesus is, maybe for some of you for the first time, but also once again to see what it means to know and follow our King and the ways of his kingdom until he comes again or calls us home. So let's look at Mark chapter 10 and may God bless the preaching of his word this morning. As we come to our text today, Mark is actually bringing a section of his gospel narrative to a close. What happens after this is what is often called Jesus's triumphal entry into Jerusalem with the majority of the last six chapters of Mark covering roughly a week of Jesus's life. It isn't clear if what Mark writes in this section is chronological, as if he's telling this in time sequence, or if it's editorial, where he's just putting a collection of, of stories together into this one package. But either way, he's bringing it all together. 
And Mark's seeking to make a definitive point about who Jesus is and why Jesus came as Jesus gets ready to enter Jerusalem. And so to do that, first he sets the scene with Jesus telling his disciples for a third time what's about to happen to him. Look at verses 32 through 34. Mark writes, and they were on the road going up to Jerusalem and Jesus was walking ahead of them and they were amazed and those who followed were afraid and taking the 12 again, he began to tell them what was to happen to him saying, see, we are going up to Jerusalem and the son of man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles and they will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him. And after three days, he will rise. People continue to be amazed by Jesus. He's taught and done many wonderful things. But those who follow him also have some level of fear. Now, this isn't fear like a fear of spiders or a fear of the dark. This is an overwhelming sense of awe because of the same wonderful things that they've seen Jesus do and the things they've heard Jesus teach. I mean, we've seen this in the, the disciples along the way when they've declared things like, who is this that even the wind and sea obey him? But perhaps there's also a fear here because Jesus is resolute in heading to Jerusalem, a place where he tells his closest followers again that he will be arrested, falsely accused and convicted and handed over to the Romans for execution. Perhaps the disciples are afraid, maybe even a little bit nervous because of the uncertainty in their minds of what's to come for Jesus and in turn, what's to come for them. But Jesus knows for sure what's coming and he sets his face, as Isaiah 57 says, sets his face like a flint to Jerusalem. All of this serves as the backdrop of what Mark shares next and what we'll see first is that Jesus came to serve but how we're going to learn that is through a seemingly presumptuous request made by two of his disciples. Look at verse 35. And James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came up to him and said to him, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. Now, this seems like a pretty bold-sounding statement to make, isn't it? Like, I, I picture sometimes, you know, my kids, they would try to help them. Hey, are, do you have a question in there? Like, they come up and say, give me this, do this for me. Right? It sounds kind of demanding that they come up and say this to Jesus in this way. Maybe there's something lost in translation in here, in here but I don't, I don't know if that's the case. They come and they seem to have some kind of right, they think, to, to talk to Jesus in this way. But Jesus, as he often does, responds to them with grace and simply asks them a question. What do you want me to do for you? Now, many times in the Gospel of Mark, the disciples have had lots of questions about things Jesus is doing, things Jesus is saying. And oftentimes they keep those questions to themselves. They don't actually ask Jesus anything. Could this be a time where they finally humbly ask him for help to understand? Jesus, just help us understand. I know you've said this a few times. Just help us get it. We don't quite get it. Verse 37. And they said to him, grant us to sit one at your right hand and one at your left in your glory. Nope. Not asking for help. As one pastor put it, they are not humbly asking to see. They are arrogantly asking to be seen. What's going on here? Well, it seems like there's still some level of misunderstanding of Jesus' mission. At some level, they're still not realizing that the path to glory will come through suffering and sacrifice. Jesus has just said as much to them. 
But even after saying all of the bad things that are gonna happen to him, the next thing the disciples seem to think about, at least James and John, is about their own personal glory. And even if we go back to the text from last week, it's like they got the reward part of following Jesus, but they missed the last part where he says the first will be last and the last first. Is this a case of selective hearing? They hear what they wanna hear and forget what they don't want to pay attention to? They don't seem to understand or maybe are choosing to ignore that Jesus isn't heading to Jerusalem to be crowned with gold and jewels. He's heading to Jerusalem to be crowned with thorns. And when he gets there, the culmination of his journey to Jerusalem, it won't be James and John to his right and his left on a throne, but condemned men on his right and his left as he's crucified and killed on a Roman cross. Perhaps they're just trying to fast forward through that part, right? There's a part of a scene in a movie or something you don't like or part of a book. You're like, this is boring. Let's skip to the next part where it gets better. Maybe they're trying to do that there to the part where they think, they hope what will come will be prestige and power, a place of honor, a personal glory. But as one scholar writes, the cross is not for Jesus or for Mark, a difficult episode to get through on the way to a happy ending. It's precisely God's way of standing worldly power and authority on its head. The kingdom of God turns the world's ideas of power and glory upside down and inside out. And that's exactly what Jesus will help them help us see and understand. Verse 38, Jesus said to them, you do not know what you're asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink or to be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? What Jesus is saying here is you don't know what you're asking because you don't really understand what's about to happen and what that means for me. This isn't about Jesus's water baptism or like the baptism we just saw. This is about Jesus being immersed into death and then buried into the ground because he's going to go to a place of death and be crucified on the cross. He's saying, you don't understand what's about to happen to me and to you. You think this is about greatness. You think this is about glory and you're doing it in the way the world thinks. But this will be about Suffering, can you endure that? To which James and John reply in a mix of ignorance and arrogance, we're able. So Jesus says to them, verses 39 and 40, the cup that I drink, you will drink. With the baptism with which I am baptized, you will be baptized. But to sit at my right hand or at my left is not mine to grant, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared. In some ways, Jesus is giving a foreshadowing of what's gonna happen in James's life and in John's life. James actually will be martyred for following Christ. John will be tortured and exiled, as far as we know, for the remainder of his life. At the end of the day, those who will sit in places of glory along with Jesus is not for Jesus to decide. He submits himself to the will of the Father. Now, there's no response from James and John when he says this to them because the disciples, the other 10, catch wind of what's going on here and they're not real happy. Verse 41 41 says they're indignant. I mean, things are, there's conflict brewing here amongst the 12, but Jesus, as he often does, uses this as another opportunity to teach them and then turn us about life with the king and his kingdom. Verse 42 And Jesus called them to him and said to them, you know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them and their great ones exercise authority over them. What's he getting at here? 
Jesus is pointing out something key for them. They have examples of leadership all around them all of the time. But they're examples of worldly leadership. That's what he means when he says Gentiles, those that are not seeking to follow Jesus, not seeking to submit themselves to the kingdom of God. These leaders, they hold the authority they have over the heads of those they're called to lead. They flaunt their position of leadership, of being higher up the food chain, like a badge of honor, self-importance and self-promotion and demanding one's own way is very much at the center of this kind of leadership. He's saying, you know this way, guys. You've seen this all around you. But verse 43, it shall not be so among you. He's saying to the disciples, to James and John, is you're thinking like the world, but my ways and my kingdom are different. That's who I'm creating you to be. That's who I'm calling you to be. But it shall not be so among you, but whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. Listen, leadership matters. Leadership is important. It's necessary in this life. It's a God-ordained reality for our lives. So this isn't a rejection by Jesus of authority, as if Jesus is advocating for aimlessness or anarchy. It isn't that, but it is a radical redirection of how authority and leadership are to be exercised among God's people, not only in the church, but in our homes, in the workplace, in the world. See, the way of Jesus is upside down from the way of the world. This is the ethic of the kingdom of God, and it stands in stark contrast to the ethic of the kingdom of this world. Greatness won't come through position. It'll come through service. Glory won't come through self-promotion. It'll come through being a slave of all. It's counterintuitive. It's countercultural. But it's the good way that leads to life. Now, Jesus isn't just saying this because it sounds good. He isn't saying this just for the sake of being controversial, with a nice little soundbite. No, he's saying all of this because Jesus did all of this. Jesus came to serve. Verse 45, for even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve. The Son of Man, it's a title that Jesus has used before, but it's really significant that he uses it right here in this moment. It says even more about the unexpected and upside down ways of Jesus. It comes from the book of Daniel and it refers to a glorious king who will come. But check this out, Daniel chapter seven, verse 14, and to him, meaning the son of man, and to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations and languages should serve him. The son of man is a great and glorious king. He deserves to be served. But here, here Jesus says, I am the son of man and I came to serve. And Jesus is not only the son of man, he's the very son of God who's been with the father, who's been with the spirit for all eternity in perfect glory. He, of all people, would be fully justified to be served by anyone and everyone because he, of all people, has all authority. But that's not the heart and the posture of our king. No, Philippians chapter two tells us that though Jesus was in the form of God, he did not account equality with God a thing to be grasped, to be held onto, but instead he emptied himself by taking on the form of a servant. The original word here, servant, is the same as slave or bondservant that Jesus calls his disciples to. In verse 44, 
that he calls us to. Jesus can call them to this. He can call us to this because Jesus himself has been this. And when we think about who Jesus actually is, the son of man, the son of God, who's existed for all of eternity, this is insane. This is a call to everyone who would ever come after Jesus. It goes back to what he said in Mark chapter eight, verse 34. And calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Denying yourself, denying your rights, denying your place of power and your place of position, putting others above yourself and following after Christ, letting him be the king of your life instead of you being the king of your life. And so this isn't just for these 12 disciples. It isn't just for James and John. It's for you. It's for me too. If we are going to be faithful, if we're going to walk in the ways of our king in this life, in this world, we too must seek to serve and not be served, just like Jesus. And by God's grace, many of you are regularly doing this. So many of you come early on a Sunday morning to serve your brothers and sisters in various ways. People serve one another by giving a ride to and from a place when it's needed or providing a meal the birth of a child or after a, a health issue. I've seen brothers and sisters help each other repair things at their homes or their cars or help each other find a job or tutor someone in a subject that they're struggling with. Many have fostered children in this church or adopted kids into their family. And so many people work hard every day, every week at home or in the marketplace just to care for their families. I see you seeking to be these kinds of people, a servant-hearted community seeking to serve one another and serve God, but it's still really challenging, isn't it? It goes against everything around us. The air we breathe in our world, in our culture says, put me first, not others first. You deserve this. You need this. Go after it. Make it about you. It goes against everything around us, but if we're honest, most of the time it goes against everything within us. In the depths of our own heart, we want to put me first. In other words, we're often so much more like James and John than we are like Jesus. I know I am. And I like the idea of being served rather than serving. VIP status, sounds good to me. Flying first class through life, sign me up. I desire honor. I desire glory for myself. I remember early on in pastoring, going to conferences, I'd look up there and be like, man, I want to be up there. I want to be on that stage. I want to be listened to by others. I, I, I want to be thought of as successful, as knowledgeable, as sought after, as a big deal. Maybe I'll write a book. Not so people could learn anything, but so they could think how great I am, what I have to say. I didn't want to be really a humble servant leader. I just wanted to be a leader with authority, with influence, with sway. But thankfully, by God's grace, because he loves me, he's humbled me again and again and again. So that same desire, it's not as strong anymore, but man, it's certainly still present, lurking just below the surface of my own heart, my own life. 
know, I talk with my kids often, pray with them often. If they would be servant leaders at home, at school, on their sports teams. But I can still struggle to be a servant leader. I can have a bad attitude. I can be selfish and self-focused. I can demand my own way, even with them. It's really challenging to live this out. But it's exactly why I need Jesus. Just as much as these 12 disciples need Jesus, just as much as you need Jesus. Not only for his example, seeing and believing that he came to serve and not be served, but also knowing and believing that Jesus came to save, which is where Jesus goes next. For even the son of man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus served people in many ways. He healed people, he taught people, he helped people, but the ultimate way that Jesus served the world is by giving his life as a ransom for many. What exactly does that mean? Well, a ransom is a payment made, usually to free someone from some kind of captivity. You've probably watched movies, TV shows before where there's a ransom note saying, we'll give this back to you, this person or this thing, if you pay, if you give this amount of money to us. So what does this have to do with us? We have to understand our situation apart from Christ. You and I are born into this world as rebels. We assert our own independence from God saying, God, I don't need you. I don't want you. I'm good on my own. But the reality is instead of experiencing freedom in that, we're enslaved to our sin. Sin, which leads to not light and life, but to death and darkness. And there's no way for you, there's no way for me to work our way out of our slavery. We are captive. The debt is too large. Our rebellion against God is cosmic treason and it must be dealt with. And there's nothing I can do on my own to fix that. It has to be dealt with because God is holy and God is just. But God is not just holy and just just. He is also full of grace and full of mercy. And the good news of the gospel is what God demands from us, he's given to us in Jesus. So Jesus, the eternal son of God, came into this world under humble circumstances, taking on human flesh to serve us, us who were captive, who were enslaved, who were dead in our sin, to serve us by becoming a ransom for us. He did that by living a life of perfect obedience. He did that by placing others' needs above his own. He did that by going to a Roman cross and becoming a substitute, dying in your place, in my place, taking on the punishment that we deserve for our sin. And in doing all of that, he paid the monstrous, enormous, eternal debt that we owed for our rebellion. That's amazing news. But it's even more amazing when we realize, when we acknowledge that Jesus came to serve and Jesus came to save us, not because we deserved it, not because we were even looking for it. Romans 5.8 says that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. He came to serve us. He came to save us. Sam mentioned this in his testimony because he loves us. Even in our most unlovable state, even as we sought to be served instead of served, even as we sought our own glory instead of his, that's so upside down, so countercultural to the world, a world that is built and based on merit and worthiness. But it's the way of Jesus. It's the way of the King. Pastor Tim Keller, 
who uh, passed away recently. Man, I'm going to miss his voice to the church. If you haven't read anything or listened to anything that he's said or spoken, I encourage you to pick up some of his books. In his book, Center Church, he says, Jesus triumphed over sin, not by taking up power, but by serving sacrificially. He won through losing everything. This is a complete reversal of the world's way of thinking, which values power, recognition, wealth, and status. The gospel then creates a new kind of servant community with people who live out an entirely alternate way of being human. And that brings us back to the disciples. It brings us back to us. Brothers and sisters, we want to be a servant community, but we can struggle to live this new way of being human out in our lives. And I think part of the disciples' problem, part of our problem, let me just be honest, part of my problem is I often want what Jesus can give me, life, joy, peace, but I want a shortcut to it. I want a cheat code. I want him and what he can give me without the cross. I want it without the need to take up my cross and follow him. I want resurrection without having to die to self. It seems that's what James and John wanted also. Maybe you do too. In the midst of the demands and challenges of life, as hard or as mundane as they are, we can be tempted to turn inward looking for what we think we deserved, deserve or drifting towards demanding our own way, especially, especially in moments when we're tired or we're weary. And in those moments, we can so easily forget how much we still need the cross each and every day, each and every moment. How it not only saves us from our self-focus and our sin, but also how it sets an example for us of sacrificial love servant-hearted leadership for every sphere of your life. In this instance, James and John missed it. But on the other side of the resurrection, they'll get it. That Jesus, the very son of God, the son of man, came to serve and came to save by giving his life as a ransom for many, including them, and it will utterly change their lives. They'll live the rest of their days serving the risen king and his people. What might the rest of your life look like? As many days as the Lord would give you. Or how about just this week? Will you look to Jesus as the means and example of the life he's calling you to live? Will we together look to Jesus and follow him to be the servant community he has called and created us to be? Will you seek to serve or will you seek to be served? I know which one I would like to do, which one I would like to be, but I know I'm gonna fail and I'm gonna falter along the way many times. I will choose me over others a lot. And that's why I too still need Jesus who came to serve and Jesus who came to save. And it's why I need you to encourage and help me along the way to follow after him. As I said, Jesus is about to enter Jerusalem to crowds of people declaring his praises, but he will enter it on the way to the cross. But before Mark gets to that part, he shares this short last story of healing. And again, it isn't clear whether this is chronological or editorial. But right before Jesus said, take up your cross and follow me, he also healed a blind man. 
So literarily, these are two bookends that hold up this middle section of Mark, which is all about following Jesus. Here in this context, it also serves as a postscript example of who Jesus is and what he's calling us to. It gives us a fuller picture of his serving and his saving. Look at verses 46 through 50. And they came to Jericho. And as he was leaving Jericho with his disciples and a great crowd, Bartimaeus, a blind beggar, the son of Timaeus, was sitting by the roadside. And when he heard that it was Jesus of Nazareth, he began to cry out and say, Jesus, son of God, have mercy on me. And many rebuked him, telling him to be silent. But he cried out all the more, son of David, have mercy on me. And Jesus stopped and said, call him. And they called the blind man saying to him, take heart, get up, he is calling you. And throwing off his cloak, he sprang up and came to Jesus. Jesus' fame is known, spreading. Bartimaeus knows he needs Jesus' help. He, this could be someone who actually helped me. And so he calls out to him. And what does he say? Verse 47, he doesn't say, Jesus, make me great. Make me famous. No, he says, have mercy on me. The crowd rebukes him. After all, he's just a lowly blind beggar pushed to the margins of society. In other words, he's unimportant. Certainly doesn't have the right to get Jesus' attention or maybe even Jesus' help, but he doesn't care what other people think. He cries out all the more, have mercy on me. And I love this. It says Jesus stops and Jesus calls him. But notice he doesn't call him directly. He, he uses others, likely people in the crowd or most likely some of his disciples to go to the man there's always something for Jesus' people to learn. And their tone changes, it seems. Verse 49, take heart, he's calling you. And what does he do? I love this, verse 50. He throws off what is likely his only possession of any worth, and he came to Jesus. Last week, we saw Jesus call a man who likely had anything and everything he could ever want. He called him to follow him, and that man, he turned away. He missed Jesus. But here we have a man who has nothing and can't physically see, but actually sees Jesus and comes to him. And then look what happens in verse 51. And Jesus said to him, what do you want me to do for you? It's the exact same question he asked James and John. Same question, but different answers are given. And the blind man said to him, Rabbi, let me recover my sight. When Jesus who came to serve and Jesus who came to save asks James and John what he gets from them is a request for power and prestige. When he asks Bartimaeus what he gets is a request for mercy and a new life. James and John ask to be seen. Bartimaeus asks to see. James and John are not seeing Jesus rightly. Bartimaeus already has eyes of faith to see Jesus for who he is. Which is why Jesus says to him, go your way. Your faith has made you well. And immediately he recovered his sight and followed him on the way. Jesus doesn't give this man spare change. He gives him new sight and he gives him new life. There's something we lose in translation here in our English versions of the Bible. In the original language, the phrase made you well is the word that can also be translated saved or rescued. In other words, your faith, Bartimaeus, has saved you. In this moment, what Bartimaeus experiences is not just physical healing, but spiritual healing. He was looking for a new life, being able to see, but he got new life as he set his eyes on Jesus. And now it says he follows him on the way. 
the way to the cross, the way to the empty tomb, which will be the place where his true, most desperate need will be met and paid for in full. This healing that Mark places at the end of this section of his gospel serves as a postscript example to show us who Jesus is. And this is what Jesus does. He came to serve. He came to save, not those who have it all together. Not those who deserve it from the world's perspective, but those who are desperately in need, those who desperately understand their need for his mercy and grace. Is that you this morning? Do you understand how much you need Jesus to serve and save you? Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Everything about Jesus, everything about his kingdom are upside down and unexpected, right down to this man who's an unexpected recipient of mercy and salvation. So the reality is we are all born spiritually blind. None of us can recover our spiritual sight on our own. Only God in his abounding grace and lavish love can give us ears to hear the good news of Jesus and eyes to see the greatness of him who came to serve and him who came to save by giving his life as a ransom for many. Sam testified to that this morning. God gave him ears to hear and eyes to see and Sam put his faith and trust in Jesus. Do you hear him calling you to himself? Do you see Jesus for who he truly is? Jesus' ways and his kingdom are different, even upside down from the world because Jesus is different. He's not of this world. And if you and I are going to be his people, there are implications for us in our lives too. We also are called to live differently, to live in this world, but not of this world. We're called to serve one another and those around us. We're called to go and tell our neighbors and the nations how Jesus is a ransom for many. Whoever would be great among you must be your servant. Whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. Brothers and sisters, Jesus came to serve us. Jesus came to save us. So now let's deny ourselves, take up our cross and follow him for his glory not our own. Amen.